Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Everybody and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often scandalous and exciting sides of history, the things you didn't learn in school. Um, we are here with Women's History Month. As you know, if you listen to our podcast, we think that all history is women's history and women's history is all American history. Um, but we love to focus in on women. And today we have an extra little layer of some disability rights history as well. So um, I'm really excited about today's episode. As always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the, the Rebecca. Rebecca's. Uh, it's March. We are so excited to um, focus in on women's history. Obviously, if you listen to the podcast or come on our tour, you know that we have no shortage of women we like to talk about. But this is always a chance to kind of zero in, bring usually a new perspective uh, to maybe a woman you think you know. Um, before we get started, as always, thank you to our patrons. We love our patrons. They keep the lights on. They make this podcast happen. If you don't know, patrons get a whole special feed of bonus episodes. So you, for just a couple dollars a month, can have access to that patron feed, get discounts on tours, and get some other really good goodies. Speaking of tours, we're moving into spring. It's spring break season. It's going to be Easter weekend. And then before you know it, it's Memorial Day. So we're just barreling right through the spring. Uh, if you are coming to D.C., if you're a local, check us out at dcbyfoot.com. We have lots of wonderful tours happening all around the city. And uh, if you're a podcast listener, let us know. Reach out. We have special rates for private tours this time of year. So we definitely want to see you out on a tour. Come see us in person. So we hope that we will get a chance to see you face to face. We have a fabulous topic for today. This is the opposite of how I feel like we start a lot of episodes where we're like, you probably haven't heard this name. I will bet good money that every single person listening in this moment has heard the name Helen Keller. And that is the woman we're going to talk about today. But I feel like our perspective of Helen Keller, what we learn about her is often a very tiny little sliver of her life story. And her life story is so incredible. And there's so much about her that I love and admire. And she's such a powerful, important figure. So I'm really excited for us to pull the curtain back on Helen Keller a little bit, get into the parts of uh, her story that your history teachers in school did not want to talk about, and to share the DC connections. Because I don't know if people associate Helen Keller with Washington, DC, but she has some really strong ties to our nation's capital. 
So Helen Keller, I feel like is kind of part of the, our favorite theme on this. Like our favorite theme on this podcast is you have heard of this person, but everything you know is wrong. Like we <laughs> talked about Columbus or the Pilgrims or Pocahontas. And Helen Keller is like a variation. Like you've heard of Helen Keller and everything you know about her is correct, actually. But it's just not the full story. Like there's a lot more to it. And Helen Keller is famous for some very real and deservedly awesome reasons. And we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about like what the rest of her kind of story. So I've wanted to talk about her since day one. Like this is a, a long time on my wish list of things to talk about. And she's born in Tuscumbia, Alabama, which is the northwest corner of Alabama, uh, in 1880 to wealthy parents. Her mother is the daughter of a general, a Confederate general in the Civil War. Her father had Confederate ties or was in the Confederate Army. So there's they come from she comes from sort of wealth and is you know doing a, an Alabama thing she is born both sighted and hearing but before her second birthday loses both to a disease which may have been scarlet fever it also may have been meningitis it's not really clear but she gets really really sick when she's about 19 20 months old and never sees or hears again and I also would like to mention, in response to some very weird conspiracies on the interwebs, Helen Keller was very real, 100% real. And uh, it is possible to be both blind and deaf. I just want to put that up. So, y'all, really quickly, not to lose the flow of the episode, but Rebecca did the outline for this. And when she shared it with me, there was a note about responding to this internet conspiracy. And I stupidly was like, what internet conspiracy? And went Googling. And don't do that, guys. Don't go looking to see what people are saying about someone like Helen Keller because she yeah. existed. And if you've got like a teen in your household and they spend a lot of time on the internet, maybe sit down and talk to them about Helen Keller and make sure they know that she was real because that is out there like in TikTok and on Reddit and it is, bonkers yes. guys so just a little word of warning about what is in the wild wild it's crazy town uh, and yeah i i i thought i thought rebecca was joking or having a go at me like in the notes to see if i was really reading them um and then it turns out it was very real and here's where i'm at <laughs> the conspiracy I'm so... is real not oh, yeah. any of the nonsense about her I'm very, I was so sure that you'd already know this because you're so much more like plugged in and cool and hip than I am. So I was like, obviously, Beckon is. Look, I am terminally online and even I did not know, which awesome. speaks to how out of touch I am. Fantastic. So she's at this point, she's about two and she's blind and deaf and it's her mother struggles with how to reach her. She can't communicate. And I just can only imagine how isolating that must have been growing up without being able to receive so many inputs and her mother is desperate to get some help for her and the family has a good bit of money and so she's going to write to a lot of different people uh, including Alexander Graham Bell and they're going to send her a couple different places one of the places they send send her mother is the Perkins Institute for the Blind and so she's going to eventually her mother Kat is going to employ a woman named Annie Sullivan bring her down from the Perkins Institute for the Blind which is in Massachusetts to Alabama to be held Helen's governess and teacher. And Annie Sullivan, if you know about Helen Keller, you've also probably heard about Annie Sullivan. They have a, this is the start of a nearly 50 year 
partnership, companionship, friendship, mentorship. They are in each other's lives right up until the very end. And Keller, Helen Keller will later describe the day that Sullivan arrives at her house as my soul's birthday, which gives you a hint at how really close and connected they become. And Annie Sullivan is herself visually impaired. She's not blind, but she is visually impaired. So she was at Perkins Institute basically to help integrate other people who suffer from the same disability into society. And so this is what she's trained to do. But she's only about 20 years old and she's going all the way down to a place she's never been before to essentially be the minder and teacher for this little child who has had no input of any type. And it's a, it's slow going for a while. It is hard to reach Helen Keller. She's sort of isolated in her own world. And the famous incident that sort of everyone's heard about uh, is the water incident. Annie Sullivan will immediately begin signing letters into Helen Keller's hand. So if Helen Keller's holding a mug, Annie Sullivan will sign the uh, make the signs for mug in her hand. And it takes Helen Keller a while to sort of process that that's what's happening and to connect what's being signed into her hand to the thing that she's holding. The breakthrough comes at a water pump in their their yard in the the keller's home she's signing water into her hand feeling the water over her other hand and she has this breakthrough and sort of realizes kind of what's going on eventually helen keller is going to attend perkins with annie sullivan as her companion she attends schools for the deaf and she learns how to speak it takes her a little while but she does and she eventually is going to go to the cambridge school for young ladies and then to radcliffe college which is part of harvard university along the way helen keller's going to pick up a lot of high profile admirers she's buddies with mark twain she calls him essentially her bestie. Uh, she is also in, been introduced through Twain to Henry Huddleston Rogers, who uh, are going to pay for her education. Uh, and so she's going to go to Radcliffe, but Radcliffe at the time is the women's arm of Harvard because Harvard was all men back then. So pause here for misogyny sadness. Shocking. <laughs> anyway, she's got a lot of friends and Rogers's pay for her schooling. And she, in 1904, at the age of 24, becomes the first blind and deaf person to obtain a Bachelor of Arts. She actually graduates Phi Beta Kappa. She becomes, she's a, uh, becomes a writer and a speaker. And she's famous, even as at the time. She is famous at that moment uh, as sort of this brave young woman who's accomplished all these things against all these tremendous odds. And I should take a moment to, before we sort of pivot into Helen Keller beyond this moment, but how remarkable this is. There were, and she is certainly aided by her family's wealth and status. The fact that they have access to resources is an extremely helpful avenue for Helen Keller, but there are not a lot of opportunities to obtain an education if you are blind and or deaf, let alone both. There's very few institutions. Perkins is the very first school in the United States to cater specifically to those that are visually impaired. Um, the Perkins Institute still exists today. So this is something that has existed in the United States for almost 200 years. But there, that was really the only opportunity. It cost money. It was expensive. Luckily, Helen Keller's family had money. Uh, the fact that Ann Sullivan was sort of willing to push the limits of what was considered 
the the standard way to educate a young person in this situation. So Helen Keller really benefits from that. So the fact that she's able to obtain this education, she's able to have sort of this backing of um, Henry Huddleston Rogers to help pay for higher education, that she's able to have advocates that are really pushing for the accommodations and access that she needs makes her very unique. And so, of course, it attracts a lot of attention. But I think it's worth noting, too, that there would have been lots of other people in the U.S. facing these same struggles that didn't have that opportunity, that access due to a lack of resource. And just if you couldn't travel to Massachusetts to go to Perkins, you were out of luck. Right. If you can't travel, first of all, and also like there's not a lot of women sighted and hearing women who are going to college, getting college degrees in those days. So the fact that she's like a woman getting a college degree, blind and deaf, this is, it's a really remarkable accomplishment. And she's justifiably famous. She makes all kinds of friends uh, and is kind of a big celebrated deal for her courage, for her inspiration. People talk about how, um, you know, she's overcome so much and she's got such a, um, gets a lot of publicity and very much is the sort of darling of the press. They talk about her courage and how smart she is and how she's, you know, so articulate given her restrictions. And it's really a, a lovely sort of feel good story that captures a lot of the popular imagination at the time and gets her a lot of press. Annie Sullivan is her sort of faithful companion. And I always feel like Annie Sullivan does not get enough credit. Like Annie Sullivan's whole life becomes Helen Keller. She's with her almost all of the time. Helen Keller can't go to school without someone to help her. And so that's kind of Annie Sullivan. Like you don't get a vacation when you're with somebody like all of the time. So it's a lot. One of the things that is admirable too, admirable, admirable about Helen Keller is that she recognizes the opportunities that she's had advantage of and that she takes that platform and uses it to advocate for other people with disabilities, right? So even as a young woman, she recognizes that there are other young people like her, other young people who haven't had the access to an Ann Sullivan and to these educational institutions. And she will begin as a young person into the end of her life to be one of the most outspoken advocates for people with disabilities in the United States um, and really aligning disability rights with the broader progressive movement of the time advocating for other rights as well. I know we're going to pivot into other parts of her life, but I think that element is important to note. Absolutely. And so this is what a lot of people know about Helen Keller, and it's really great. And it's incredibly praiseworthy and it is not an exaggeration at all. Like it is a remarkable feat, particularly at that moment for someone to graduate from Harvard, for a woman to graduate from Harvard and for someone who with both blindness and deafness to graduate from Harvard. It's a really incredible accomplishment. But if you read a standard bio of her, this is kind of where it ends. She graduates from Harvard in 1904 when she's in her twenties and does social activism and dies in 1968. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> there are a There's lot, a lot more years there. There are a lot of years between 1960, 1904 and 1968. There are, in fact, 64 years in there. What happens there? What does she do? What does social activism mean? What does Helen Keller do for the bulk of her adult life? And so this is the, re the record scratch moment, right? So Helen Keller is going to she wants to establish she reads braille and she wants to establish a new language for the blind and really realizes that what she's doing is treating the symptoms of 
blindness rather than the causes of blindness. And so she looks at blindness and deafness sort of spread out over the entire population and discovers that while deafness occurs randomly across the larger population, blindness does not. And so what I mean by that is deafness is evenly distributed. There are as many men who are deaf as women, white people as non-white people, rich as poor. It's a it's sort of randomly distributed across the larger population. Blindness is not. And this becomes her big nugget. Blindness, she discovers, is very much correlated with your socioeconomic status, right? So there are far fewer people on the upper, richer end of the spectrum who are blind than the poorer end of the spectrum. So that means there is a external factor here at work. Why are, in fact, the, the further you go down the socioeconomic ladder, the more the incidence of blindness goes up. So the poorer you are, the more chance you have to be blind. That means there's something about poverty that is causing more people to be blind. And so she's gonna look into that. And what she discovers is there's a lot of reasons, but two big ones sort of stand out. One is work. If you're working for a living, you're much more likely to be subject to industrial accidents. There's a lot of women who go blind because they're sewing uh, under poor light and bad conditions and it erodes their eyesight. You also see women, particularly prostitutes, who are uh, subjected to syphilis. One of the last stages of syphilis is blindness. Uh, and so you've got work and you also have inadequate access to medical care, so bad health care. And so the combination of those two things are causing more blindness to be concentrated in the poor, regardless of race, regardless of gender, but poor seems to be the thing here. And this is gonna lead her to, drum roll, what does it lead her to, Rebecca? Socialism. Yeah. And, and truly like, she is a radical socialist. Yeah, you can't is. really, I mean, you can because many, many, many textbooks and history books do. You should not talk about Helen Keller without acknowledging that her life experience and her deep study into the inequity that comes with how blindness is distributed across the American population at this time, the late 19th century, early 20th century, is directly tied to socioeconomic status. She becomes a radical socialist. And this is something that carries through for the rest of her life. She is an exceptionally outspoken advocate and activist far beyond simply the range of fighting for disability rights. Um, she is an activist in just about every cause that matters at this time. And we'll, we'll enumerate them a little bit. But whenever I hear anyone talk about Helen Keller and they don't say socialist in the first like minute, I'm deeply suspicious. And I know we didn't say it in the first minute of our podcast. We were setting it up. It's a moment, but if you are reading something, looking at something, you're at a museum, there's a plaque about Helen Keller. If it doesn't mention socialism, there's a problem there because it was woven into every aspect of the last 60 years of her life. Yes. Oh, she's into leftist politics even while she's at Harvard. Like she kind of moves in that direction. She has a big like communist poster, like a red banner above her desk, even that she can't see. She's going to move further and further to the left, eventually becoming far left, even for a socialist. Like she's a wobbly, the industrial workers of the world. Like she's very far left. And this is going to cause a little bit of an issue because she's one of the most famous women in the world. 
right? There have been all kinds of people who've written about her. People want to come see her. She's friends with Mark Twain. Like she is a public figure essentially. And all of a sudden, like she's advocating for radical social change. She even is going to speak kindly of the new Soviet Union when the Russian Revolution happens in the midst of the First World War. So she is taking positions that are kind of at odds with a lot of the people that are surrounding her. And so all of a sudden, what really becomes interesting is she becomes subject to a lot of different publicity. It's still publicity, but suddenly she's not um, extolled for her courage. She is, well, you know, she has these disabilities, and this is obviously what's propelling her into radical politics. And so it's, you know, suddenly people are questioning her intelligence and questioning whether her her blindness and or her deafness is sort of has hampered her in some very critical way. Uh, and so she's going to, like, basically one newspaper editor says that, and this is a quote, her mistakes spring out of the manifest limitations of her development. And Helen Keller, because she's completely badass, is going to clap back. And she says, yeah, I remember meeting this guy, quote, at the time, the compliments he paid me were so generous that I blush to remember them. But now that I have come out for socialism, he reminds me and the public that I am blind and deaf and especially liable to error. I have shrunk in intelligence in the years since I met him. <laughs> Which is amazing. Amazing. It's so great. She's she's so she um, she's a feminist, which obviously like through and through. She advocates for the vote. Um, she's a, a big suffragist. She advocates for birth control, too. And she hates on Woodrow Wilson a lot, which we all know. I just, you know, be still my heart. Uh, I want to touch on her suffrage activity just for a minute because she, from really from her, her collegiate time on, is a strong advocate for women having the vote. She uh, aligned herself with the National Women's Party when it's formed the more sort of radical side of the suffrage fight. You know, she sees the vote as really just the stepping block, right? It's the first step in women having equal rights. She will write an essay, publish an essay in November of 1912, that is called How I Became a Socialist. So she puts that essay out there in the world for people to see. And then just a few months later, it's March of 1913, and it's the suffrage parade. We've talked about this on the podcast. This is the big demonstration the day before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson. And she is a major player. And there is some pressure on the organizers of this march not to give Helen Keller such a big platform because of this socialist essay she had published. But Keller had been on the ground really advocating for women's vote. And so she marches in the parade. She is there. She is supposed to be a keynote speaker at Constitution Hall. So the idea was this big parade through the city and they'd speak at Constitution Hall. If you've listened to some of our past episodes, you know know that they are disrupted by protesters, by men throwing things into the crowd. There's a, a huge crush of people. And it's such a traumatic incident that ultimately she ends up not speaking that day. She is just so unnerved by the violence, which you can imagine is particularly frightening when you lack sight and when you're not, you know, what must have been so terrifying. But she would later publish her speech that she was supposed to give. She really has some beautiful 
quotations from that speech. I'll just pull a little bit out of the beginning because uh, I really love it. I am deaf, but I hear the glad tidings of women's liberation, which shall soon be flung abroad through the land. I am blind, but I see the dawning light of a new day when there shall be no woman enslaved, no child robbed of the sweet joy of childhood in the war of daily bread. All earthly opposition cannot stay our onward march. It's a really, really beautiful speech. And then just a few months later, She's going to uh, continue to publish articles uh, and sort of put her suffrage views forward. And she she would say later she regretted not being able to deliver that speech that day. But one of my favorite quotes of hers related to women's suffrage, and she would drop this in a couple different essays, is, quote, when women vote, men will no longer be compelled to guess at their desires and guess wrong. And so uh, I sort of love that because <laughs> she's not wrong. But this is a, this is something that she dedicates truly years and years of her life to the the fight for the vote, and then beyond that, after the Nineteenth Amendment is ratified, continuing to fight for other elements of women's equality, including access to birth control, access to education, access to workplace protections. She will really be in that step all the way up to supporting the Equal Rights Amendment when it's introduced um, in the nineteen twenties, and, and and being an advocate for that until her death. So that is a major element of her work, but she is sometimes at odds with other members of the movement because of her more radical political uh, stance. So I just wanted to touch on that. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, she's a, a feminist. She's got radical socialist views. And she becomes a lifelong fundraiser for the American Federation for the Blind. So she's fundraising and speaking all over the place. And it's this, it's really interesting. She advocates, obviously advocates for all kinds of people with disabilities. And she's a birth control supporter, which is interesting to me. She's on the forefront of a lot of progressive issues that are kind of coming to the forefront. We've talked about this before. This is the period where you're talking about child labor. You're talking about birth control. You're talking about women liberation she is advocating for all of these things she's advocating against child labor she's advocating for better working conditions she will talk about how she goes to factories and she says i could not see or hear but i could smell what was happening and how terrible the conditions were and so she's really this is part of her like socialist activism really advocating on behalf of people raising class consciousness she's very very aware of how her good start in life enabled her to become who she becomes enabled her to get the help that she needed and the assistance of annie sullivan and go to perkins and then harvard the fact that she's white the fact that she's upper middle class the fact that she has the means to do this affects her outcomes and she thinks that everyone should have similar opportunities to thrive the way that she did and so she's going to be very upfront in that. In 1916, she's going to send money to the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, because she's so ashamed at the Southern unchristian treatment of African-Americans. So she's going to be an advocate for racial equality. And this is the daughter, uh, a granddaughter of people who fought for the Confederacy. So she is very aware of, again, her privilege because she is disabled. That sort of gives her, I feel like, an insight into how society treats everybody who is slightly different in a myriad of different ways. She also helps to found the American Civil Liberties Union in 1920, uh, which is still with us. Yay. Uh, she travels to 40 countries. She goes to Japan. Apparently Japan becomes a favorite destination of hers um, with Annie Sullivan. And Annie Sullivan remains at her side for decades. 
They have this very lovely friendship and partnership. And Helen Keller does, Annie Sullivan's a few years older uh, than Helen Keller is. She eventually is going to get married and sort of uh, semi-retire. And so Helen Keller moves into a couple of other companions. Her later companion is a woman named Polly Thompson. But she, they are going to remain connected for right up until the end of Annie Sullivan's life. In fact, Annie Sullivan dies uh, Helen Keller is holding her hand. So this is a really one of the most primary and important relationships uh, in her life. Helen Keller will support Eugene Debs for president in the uh, 19-teens and 20s. Um, she's a pacifist, so she's uh, against ma- American military intervention in uh, the First World War and then eventually later in the Second World War. Uh, she becomes a wobbly, so she's really known for her really radical leftist views. It's not all fun and games, though. She does hold some pretty serious eugenics opinions, which is not great. Birth control at this time is necessary and important and there's strong advocates for it, but there is also a darker side to this that some people should not breed and that there should be, you know, it's it's a it gets to sort of a, a darker cast to this. She writes a lot. She writes an autobiography. She writes a bunch of different books as she sort of gets older. She is... Also, I read in her 30s, she becomes secretly engaged to a man, but because she is at this point a radical and at this, and she's always been blind and deaf, she is told that she can't marry him. And so they're, uh, they think about running away together and it doesn't end up happening. Apparently that's, uh, that's a little bit of part of her life as well. And what is so interesting to me, she, start, she outlives Annie Sullivan by quite a few years she has a series of different companions. She, As she ages, she's less and less active. She has a series of strokes starting in 1961 that increasingly debilitate her. Uh, she will fundraise, but travel significantly less. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson gives her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And she basically, in her few, her final year, she's confined to her home in Connecticut and dies on June 1st, 1968, days before her 88th birthday. So quite the long life. And she has a funeral at Washington National Cathedral. It's a big, elaborate affair. And she is going to be interred there with both of her companions, Annie Sullivan and Polly Thompson. They are still there, interred in the basement crypt part of Washington National Cathedral. Together, I think. Yeah, if you visit the cathedral, which you absolutely can do, we offer tours of the cathedral um, and we'll put a link in the show notes to our guide to visiting the cathedral. But if you go down into one of the chapels in the, the crypt level, there's a plaque for um, Helen Keller and includes a little bit of Braille there. Um, so you'll see it's very popular. People will touch the Braille uh, inscription. There's a plaque for Anne Sullivan. There's actually not a plaque for Polly Thompson, which is unfortunate because she is also there as well. I wanted to mention the Helen Keller Institute, which is something that she founds and still exists today. It's a big part of her legacy. It was the Helen Keller Institute. Today it is Helen Keller International. She founds this in 1915. And she does this with a guy named George Kessler. George Kessler was known as the Champagne King. He was um, a big importer of French champagne and a big vinter as it was. And he was on the Lusitania in 1915 and it was torpedoed. Uh, spoiler, we haven't done an, an episode on the Lusitania yet. But um, he's like, you know, on this boat that gets torpedoed and he is fighting for his life in the frigid waters of the Atlantic. And he vows if he survives, he's going to devote his life and his money to something worthwhile. 
And it turns out that when he comes home, he learns that a lot of American soldiers had been blinded by exposure to tear gas in the First World War. And so he becomes an advocate, particularly for soldiers that are dealing with blindness after the Great War. This is going to put him into the path of Helen Keller. The two of them become very close friends. And he is going to fold his work into the organization she had founded in 1915 to aid the blind. So with his money and resource, it becomes Helen Keller Institute and then Helen Keller International, and it still exists today. They work in over 20 countries all around the world. Um, the two big areas of focus are eye health, trying to prevent and treat um, eye conditions that can lead to blindness, and then nutrition, which has a very strong connection to eye health. But it's her and the Champagne King that team up together to start that. And it's still an international NGO today. They're, they're headquartered in New York City. Um, and this is something that she, well into the 1960s, was still fundraising for and still out advocating for. Um, so that's an important piece of her legacy. And I just, I don't know, it's fun to say Champagne King. So I was like, we got to integrate that in. Right. I'd like to team up with the Champagne King. Yeah, I would like And this just reminds me, we've got to do the Lusitania at some point, too. We do. (laughs) So the thing about Helen Keller that I think is really interesting, and this is the nugget that I want to, like, put pause on, is by talking only about the first part of her life, we, first of all, leave out a lot of really interesting and critical stuff. Second of all, we leave her as basically a young person. We freeze her and sort of infantilize her, and we make her one-dimensional. Right. That's it's an easily digestible. She was, you know, overcame these really heroic obstacles and was, you know, this sort of beacon and a very, you know, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps kind of narrative, which everyone in America loves. You know, you can do it. If Helen Keller can do it, you can do it, too. The trouble with that is, is she doesn't really want to be frozen in childhood. She wants to talk that the meaning of her life is in what she does after she overcomes her disability in all the advocacy and the the struggle that she's going to do for those 60 years of her life in her sort of embrace of women's issues and disability rights issues and socialism that's going to it's going to be um, a little bit more a a push the idea that not everyone has the power to rise like she did that's sort of what animates most of her adult life is that she had advantages and wants to make sure that everyone in America has the same advantages that she does and so it's really interesting that she is been made boring almost by this sort of narrative that she's you know she, she did this heroic thing as a child, which she did do. And I don't want to de-emphasize how amazing it was because it really was a fantastic feat. But then she's going to use that to really promote the idea that the we have an unequal system and other people have the should have the ability to rise the way that she did. She's not the first blind and deaf person to go to learn how to speak. She's not even the first to learn how to write or to get a degree. There are other people that did that first. What she is, is she's gonna use this knowledge to propel a narrative. And so it's really just such a great example of how we whitewash our history and leave people in a one note spot. She was a complicated character. She did a lot of things that make people at the time and today uncomfortable. Socialism was then and remains even more so today a dirty word. But what she's advocating for is the idea that we should take care of each other. 
that a society is made better by making sure that you know the least among us have the same opportunities that she did and so that's kind of where she's going to go with socialism and did it made very, people very uncomfortable at the time and it still does now but i think that that's sort of the nugget that she'd want us i don't want to speak for her but that's the nuggets that she'd want us to go forward with is the meaning of her life is what she does with the education that she's been provided and i think it speaks more broadly to how we're most comfortable talking about women and representing women in public spaces, that if you were to Google statues of Helen Keller, to which there are many, including one in the US Capitol building, she is almost exclusively represented as a young woman or a teenager, right? She's almost always represented at the water pump. This is true of the statue in the US Capitol building. It's true uh, several statues in Alabama will be her at the water pump or her and Ann Sullivan together, um, you know, hands clasped, learning to speak. And it, it is absolutely a choice to only tell that portion of her story. It's an easier way, I think, to process complex women in American history is by sort of pigeonholing one aspect of their story. And that's what we see. Um, there's a handful of busts that have been done that represent her as an adult, but it's very rare. And in her most public, most well-known visual representations, these statues and memorials, both in the nation's capital and in Alabama, she is represented as a child or a young woman. And uh, it's an easy way to not have to address the more difficult, challenging parts of her story, right? Uh, we don't have to dabble with what, why she's a socialist and where that comes from. And we don't have to dabble with um, the fact that she was pushing for things that even in the middle of the 20th century were um, radical civil rights and disability rights and her, her views on labor. And so I always, uh, I, lo I love the fact that there are places that we can show her story and tell her story in DC, but it's a little tough to walk into the Capitol Visitor Center and see her, as you sort of said so beautifully, like just frozen in time and just a whole, a massive aspect of her life completely just erased, right? Uh, in our head, if she if she just kind of stops at 15 right. or 12, it's easy to go, oh, that's great. Right, and it's so much like we have trouble with complexity in history generally, but particularly when it comes to women, like women are in a binary, and this is something we've talked about before, good or bad. It's very basic. And Helen Keller is coded as good, which is great. She was, but she's also complicated. And freezing her as a child sort of enables us to just eliminate the entire rest of her life. We don't even talk about the fact that she was a socialist. I read a lot as a kid about Helen Keller. I do not remember reading one word about socialism. I remember all the, what you read about her is she graduated from Harvard and then died 60 years later. And it's like, hmm, I feel like there's a whole lot in there, you know? And so the Helen Keller's radical politics are really born from the disability that she overcomes. And that I think is the nugget. And she, she fits our narrative of like, you know, this very one note figure you know snow white-esque she's in some ways very similar to snow white she can't talk and she can't or she can't you know she, she has disabilities and so it's easy to paint her as like a overcoming this sort of bootstrap narrative which we love in the united states but it's just not the whole story there's more to her um and she's more complicated than that she has remained very very prominent in pop culture there have been a number of movies made about her. This is more Becca's area than mine. Uh, but her, <laughs> should they make a movie called The Miracle Worker before her death even? Like she is 
going to be portrayed as a young person. There's a documentary about her before her death. Patty Duke plays her in the movie version. Of Let me jump in here um, and say, yep. before we talk about The Miracle Worker, that actually one of the very first films to be made about her comes in 1919. There's a silent film called Deliverance. She plays herself which is pretty mm -hmm. remarkable. They have actresses playing her younger. By 1919, she is an adult. Um, so she plays adult Helen Keller. But it's really fascinating. There are some clips on YouTube that you can watch. But she plays herself. Anne Sullivan plays herself, um, which is really exciting. Um, there's a handful of other um, members of the Keller family who play themselves. So it's a fictional film, as it were. It's not meant to be a documentary, but today it feels almost like a documentary because you have real people in Helen Keller's life playing themselves. Um, and we're fortunate to sort of have that record. That film's actually been preserved in the Library of Congress, but it's really, it's an hour and a half, which is long for a 1919 film, but it is a chance to actually see Helen Keller like mm -hmm. on screen. So I want to mention that because I think people probably heard of The Miracle Worker. The Miracle Worker begins as a play. Uh, I'm just going to throw that out there before it becomes... Um, it's a play and then it becomes mm -hmm. um, a teleplay and then it becomes a movie. But it's based on Helen Keller's 1903 autobiography, The Story of My Life. Helen Keller published like a dozen books in her lifetime and many, many more essays and pamphlets. So she wrote about her life extensively. The title comes from a Mark Twain quote. Um, you mentioned that they were besties. Mark Twain once said, Helen is a miracle and Miss Sullivan is the miracle worker. So the miracle worker, and this was very much the push of Helen Keller's 1903 book, is actually Anne Sullivan and the incredible impact that Sullivan had on Helen Keller's life. Um, the play has been a big success. And then of course it gets made into a very popular movie in 1962, which wins a bunch of awards. If you see the film, it's Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke who also played all those roles on screen. The, the play has been revived and done in more contemporary eras as well. But the title actually comes from Mark Twain's observation on uh, the relationship between Helen Keller and Anne Sullivan, which I think is a nice little tidbit. I didn't know that until just a few years ago, um, how close she was with Mark Twain. Um, that was not something I knew about her until kind of recently. But um, we'll put in the show notes a couple links to Deliverance, because I think it's really neat that you can actually see Helen Keller portray Helen Keller, even in a silent film. Right, and everyone wants to play themselves in the, the movie version. Like, that's the goal of all of our If lives. you can't get Meryl Streep, because right. it's 1919 and she's not born yet... The next best thing is to play yourself. Um, and it's a, it, you can see almost the full thing on YouTube, the full movie of her. She also has a statue. So her Washington connections, she has some pretty strong ones. For example, she's buried or interred uh, at National Cathedral along with Annie Sullivan and Polly Thompson. I should mention Annie Sullivan gets married and is buried with Helen Keller. So to give you a sense of how close they were, she's not <laughs> Buried with her husband. They're cremated, so buried is the wrong term, but they're inurned uh, together at the Washington National Cathedral, and you can go see them. Uh, she also, like Becca mentioned, has a statue in the Capitol, and it is in a public portion of the Capitol. We're going to talk more about statues in the Capitol next month, spoiler alert, but some of the statues are in more public places, and her statue, which is given by the state of Alabama, is in the Capitol Visitor Center. It is the only statue in the Capitol 
capital collection that you can touch. Uh, and so you can walk up to it and touch it because it's surrounded on the base with Braille. Everything, all the, the quotes and things that are on there are also written in Braille as well. And so it is uh, deliberately uh, accessible to those with visual disabilities. And it's this really lovely moment of her at the water pump. And it's a great statue. I love to point it out on tours. And I also love to point out that, you know, it's an interesting choice uh, that Alabama has chosen to send Helen Keller because she's a, I always mention she was a radical socialist. And it's just, no, not a lot of people know that about her, but it is very true. So I always find that to be kind of an interesting statue. Those are her two big DC connections, I think. And her film is kept at the Library of Congress. Yeah, those are, I think, the big ones. She's got a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery collection, although it's not always on display. But you'll see quite a bit if you come here. And we'll, again, drop some things in the show notes to help you find those spots. But Helen Keller, this is just a woman that I always, you know... As a young person, her story is so compelling and so interesting. And then as you get older and you learn more and more about her, I find her so fascinating. She's truly a woman that is like tireless in her dedication to the causes that she believes in, which are many. Um, And she is just, she never really relents um, even towards the end of her life when she's not able to travel as much. She never loses that sort of fire and passion for the causes that she feels passionate about. And I think we can all benefit from knowing more about her and knowing about sort of the full picture of her life. So I know this has been on your list of topics to do for for three years, because we're three years into the podcast. And I'm so glad we finally got around to uh, talking about Helen Keller. Me too. She's so fascinating. There's so much about her that you don't know and you want you should know more like the full picture of her and this is really why she's a perfect women's history month topic because women's history is about seeing the full picture of women in history uh and not just the like sort of nuggets uh that we've been given in history class there's a whole lot more to her so i'm really excited that we covered her and uh if you all out there have thoughts comments questions if there's something in our episode this one or any other episode that you're intrigued by and want us to do a full length treatment of at some point please let us know your thoughts and suggestions we want to talk about the things that you want to hear about uh and so please give us the the heads up uh we hope you've enjoyed uh our talk about helen keller if you are a patron you're going to get a special patron only content for women's history month but the rest of us will be back in april with some more interesting and cool stuff and so thank you guys thank you guys so much we'll see you next month bye